we do not want you to feel like we were just the money people that you had to appease on the board and get approval for your spend every quarter. Because ultimately, we want to stay friends. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to world-class investors and Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. We're back with another season of our popular VC feature series. In this episode, we're joined by Abhishek Lahoti, Head of Platform at Highland Europe, a growth-based venture capital firm based in Geneva and London. Abhishek's focus is to build a strong network of advisors and experts to help the Highland Europe portfolio scale at pace. In today's episode, we'll explore how he got into VC following his career at Dropbox, plus we'll take a deep dive into his role as Head of Platform and what it really entails. So with all that said, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor, Abhishek. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me as well. Really wonderful to, to be here. No, it's great. It's, it's lovely to see you again and super excited to share more about your career story and about your role now, which is a very, very popular one in our network. So I'm super excited to delve into it. But before we do, we always like to start off with some quickfire questions. So please finish the following sentences after me. A myth I'd like to bust about VC is that it is easy for a VC to say no. Any other sales industry, you, you have to get used to the idea of no constantly and it's not enjoyable. Uh, I think any VC likes to say no, uh, despite what people might think. Yeah, very true. Thank you. The hardest part of being a VC is predicting the future. It's basically what VCs are aiming to do, you know, revenue, strong leaders, traction, so on and so forth. They all can mean a lot at one moment and then fade really quickly amidst like a high interest rate market or AI coming out into the forefront. Like it's tricky. Yeah, I think we've seen that exposed in good and worse in the last couple of years, particularly. So yeah, that's a that's a great answer. The one thing I'd like to change about VC is? I would say diversity. I think we not only need to mix things up a bit at an entry level of getting the right people in, but we need to, as an industry, find a way to retain and promote that diverse talent into diverse leadership. Great point and something that has been a kind of consistent theme that we've had on this podcast and one that we're trying to particularly showcase the amazing diverse and underrepresented talent in the venture ecosystem, but also continue to sort of bang the drum about the importance of you know continuing to even do better uh, thank you so much Abhishek well we've already got a little snapshot I think into to, to you but we want to dive deeper into your story but before we get to Highland Europe do you mind telling us a bit about your upbringing I know you were sort of raised in the in the US so tell us a bit more about what life was like for you when you were growing up and what ultimately brought you to the UK? I grew up in a small town in Ohio. The town's claim to fame is that the American Football Hall of Fame is based there, so that's really it. I, like every good Asian boy in that area of the US, wanted to be a doctor. I went to med school for a year after university. I realized I wouldn't be a very good doctor, and so I left med school, and I then endeavored to figure something else out, much to the chagrin of my parents. I went to California. I had a college roommate who was working at eBay, PayPal at the time. And uh, he said, hey, this thing's kind of cool. I know you really like this stuff. I know you're working closely with it in college. So do you want to take a crack at it? So he helped me get a job at a company that got acquired by Adobe. So I worked at you know, kind of a scale up to a big corporation. 
went to a startup that doesn't exist anymore. So I've seen that like kind of meteoric rise to kind of catastrophic fall. Then I worked at Dropbox for the last amount of time in my California stint. And at some point in time, I felt it would be really good for me to work in Europe from a experience perspective, but also just from a personal perspective. I, I always really liked the idea of living in Europe uh, and spending some more time across the pond. So I found a way for Dropbox to move me to the UK and they moved me here, you know, very thankfully. Same job, came out doing solutions architect work for Dropbox at the time. Wanted to jump into the new tech scene, realized that things were a bit different here, a little more, more nascent. California, where I lived in San Francisco, is quite funny because if you ever drive on the 101, it, it just feels like you're watching like a, a commercial ad for a tech company every 500 feet. It's really like every single billboard. And so I like that, you know, when I came here and I asked somebody what they did, which was my first folly as an American to ask people what they do all the time, people wouldn't say tech. You know, it wasn't an assumption that you worked at a tech company, which was the assumption in California. But yeah, so then I've, I've been in the UK for about six and a half years now, pretty settled, living in London, enjoying life. Amazing. You didn't go straight into VC. You've had this really successful career in tech. And Dropbox is such an iconic brand. You know, I've been a customer for many years. So I'd love just to hear a bit more about your experience there and what your biggest learnings were for working for such an iconic rocket ship tech company. Yeah, I mean, Dropbox is probably one of the highlights of my career before, you know, moving to the UK and working in VC. I joined to be on the Dropbox for business team. So it was actually kind of the startup within the Dropbox machine. Early on in the Dropbox experience, people realized that a lot more people were using it for work than for personal reasons. And we put together a sales team and we started to go out to these big customers and think like, hey, we can join all your billing into one place. That should be enough for you to want to purchase our technology. And wow, were we really wrong about that? I mean, it takes so much to sell enterprise technology. It really does. So I think the Dropbox experience to me was a ton of lesson learning. So we learned what not to do when you want to sell companies. You have technology like Dropbox. You can't tell everybody like, hey, we already know all your users. Buy our technology and you can get access to them because that's basically like holding them hostage for their use case that they feel like they should have already. You have to know that a good product is built with time and painstaking carefulness. And to this day, I think after having used Dropbox and Box and Google Drive and OneDrive and all my experiences, like it's still the best product itself, fastest sync, easiest app and everything. Um, and you have to, the companies that we work for, especially a company like Dropbox, put a lot of stock into how their employees feel. And I've never worked for a company that took so much care of its employees. Adobe did a lot of good things. The startup I was at did a lot of good things. My VC companies have been uh, have done a lot of good things for us, but there was a general sense of good care. Um, and it was a tough company. We had layoffs like everybody does, but they led with people first. And I think that is really unique. So I was in the office five days a week when I worked at Dropbox because I felt like being in the office was a perk of being at that company. I enjoyed the space. I enjoyed the people I worked with. I enjoyed what they offered me. And when I work from home, I felt comfortable doing that as well, but I, I chose to do that. So that's a long answer to kind of what I felt like when I was working at that company. Amazing. It, it does sound like it. And I do find that the very best companies that we work with and run search for tend to lead with that people first uh, culture. And I think that comes from the, the top down, but is also emanated across the business and so important, particularly in this sort of environment where, you know, it really matters. So you moved into VC with Sapphire Ventures. Feels like, you know, a big move. So what led you to to switch it up and go to to the other side? My last roles at Dropbox were in business development. So I was much more a partnerships person. And 
the nature of business development at a company like Dropbox is a one-to-many role. You're always working with multiple deals, multiple partners, trying to manage some big book of business in a way. VC is by default one-to-many, a good VC anyways. Um, and so you have to have, be able to have your head on a swivel with a lot of companies and a lot of opportunities in front of you. I had already started my advisory work with some of the startups that I was close to. I was pioneering Dropbox for business as a VC perk for people in my role at other VC firms. So I, I kind of knew the space and I was had a cursory awareness of it all. But then I just honestly, I got recruited. So a, a recruiting firm came to me and said, hey, we have this role. We think you'd be good for it. Do you want to talk more? And the more I looked into it, the more I realized, one, the role is a lot of what you're going to make it, which is exciting for me. It's, it's a chance to grow and build and learn, but also that it sat in a space that I was really fascinated by. So I said, yeah, let's do it. Let's figure it out. Not an easy process to interview for a VC firm. People are very, very smart at VC firms and they look for really specific things. So I think I got quite lucky there. Were there particular transferable skills that helped that pivot? Partially dumb luck. I think they'd been looking for a while and they were just tired of looking. So I have to be honest about that. My old manager, she told me that she brought this up actually every time we had a, a conversation about my career in my interview. I felt like by the time my time at Dropbox was coming to an end, I had stopped learning new and interesting things. I was mastering the tasks I was given too quickly. Not that that I'm like a supremely smart person that could do that. It's I was not being presented with really difficult and painstaking things to do. So I told her, look, I the reason I'm happy to leave is that I'm no longer learning and I think that is an important thing for anybody to always have in their career. But in VC, it's not only important for you to learn, but you actually need to learn how you're going to learn. That's a weird phrase. But if you think about back to your school days, sure, you don't use algebra and geometry and trigonometry anymore. But what everybody was teaching you back in the day was how to adapt in society and learn new things constantly and be quick on your toes. And I was losing that skill by the end of time at Dropbox, not, not out of any error in anybody's ways, just the timing. That was a good skill that I could pull out and say, look, you leave me alone for a couple hours. I'm going to come back with a lot more questions and then I'm going to continuously push you until I figure things out. The attitude that I took when I started and hilariously, when I started at Sapphire, I got COVID day two. So I didn't really have a lot of meetings anyways. So if it worked out well, and it was, it was, it was hard, but it was a, a listen twice, speak once mentality. It's absorb as much knowledge as possible and be able to put forth just an answer accordingly. It's really easy to speak quickly in any meeting when you've been an operator and you're in with a, a bunch of investors, but getting to the to the right answer is not that easy. The transferable skills and the dumb luck, as you say, but I think you're being very humble. It's worked beautifully and you've had a really successful career. Just if you can take yourself back to making that transition, um, those are some of the things that kind of probably went in, in your favor. You obviously knew some of the, the, the space having been selling into similar people that were in a similar role to you. But what did you find the most challenging aspects of that transition or those first few months when you were sort of getting your head around things? I mean, although VC is, I guess, like a tangential industry to tech, the like the operations internally and the day-to-day and the lingo are completely different. Unless you work a very specific job at a tech company, you will probably not speak the same language as many people working at a VC, even the people who are old operators. You start getting into all these metrics of the company that are not important to you as a day-to-day employee, but are really important as an investor. So first, I found it really challenging just to turn my head from being an operator to being an operating investor, if you will, or investor operator. I don't know what we're going to call it. The other thing too is that 
these are all really innovative companies and these are really innovative people. You cannot assume that all the investment firms are going to be similarly as innovative, which I thought, of course, like people are investing in the cutting edge technology, they probably have great data stacks, they have cybersecurity out the wazoo, they're using the most like high tech collaboration tools and they're not. I mean, honestly, it's it took a little bit of like time to, to reset my brain on using different types of technology I hadn't used in a long time. And that's not to anybody's detriment. It's um it's just because the way that a firm operates has to be incredibly nimble for the people who are there. And it's rare that a lot of those people were operators before. We're going to have a lot of people listening to this episode in this series that really want to move into BC and, and do the move that, that you've made. So I'd love to hear your advice for them, particularly any common do's or don'ts or just general pieces of advice when it comes to you know starting out in the industry so i think the big thing that helped me in in breaking into the industry a bit was i i started doing advisory work with startups before i joined vc out of curiosity out of wanting to be uh close to the system and out of being wanting to know what new technology was going to look like so i would say do that like find innovative streams that are going on if it's the marriage program if it's an incubator that you know if it's you know the multicultural lab at morgan stanley whatever it is just plug in see if you can help see if they would would mind some of your time and you're not charging anybody for this time i think i did four or five different incubator advisory things where i just spoke to them about like hey we have a ton of smart people at dropbox who do a lot of really cool things on go to market i can just tell you what we do present me your problem and I'll tell you how we would solve that problem internally just because I've been around these meetings a lot and I know how they think and um, I can tell you if we've done it in the past how we solved it and the issues and the errors that we had so advisory work is supremely helpful I would say meet any VC that you can anytime you get a chance to if your company is invested by VCs invested in by VCs then when you see them talk to them like don't pitch them just talk to them I, I cannot tell you how many times I appreciated somebody just wanted to speak to me about the VC industry and the company I'm at rather than pitching me anything for technology. We don't bite. We're really, really like meant to be friendly people. We want to learn more about the company that we're looking at or we're looking after. And the last thing I would just say is like read up on the industry. It's it's a fascinating industry. It's not that old. So it's actually not that hard to learn a lot about it. There's really good books like Venture Deals and The Power Law that have a good breakdown of the VC industry and how it became what it is today. And some of those names are people who are like, you know, still alive and kicking and working today too. You know, Vinod Kosla has mentioned early on in all these books and he's still an investor. Like it's not a super old industry right now. So you can learn a lot. You can learn the lingo really quickly. Everybody just sort of appreciates that. Like you're going to be one to, you know, you don't need to flex knowledge, but that you're just curious and you're interested in, and all these VC people are looking for inputs. If you have anything to offer us, you know, please let us know. If you want to, hey, I'm, I'm, if you're if you're really great at working at, for example, like technology tied to security, tell me. And at some point in time, I might call you and be like, hey, I have to pick your brain on this. Such good advice, Abhishek. Thank you so much because I know a lot of people uh, will benefit from that. I, I really, really love that answer. Well, you became head of platform at Highland Europe in May 2023, a very prestigious firm, which we'll come on to talk a bit about the, the company. I'd love to understand, again, why you decided to join Highland when you did. And I'd love also to dig a bit more into the platform role because I know it differs from fund to fund. So if you don't mind sharing a bit about how you ended up there and what your role entails day to day now. I honestly kind of accidentally ended up here. I'd been at Sapphire for over two years and a good friend of mine said, hey, this from Highland Europe is looking for a head of platform. He knew that I was kind of like thinking about moving, but also just thought it might be helpful to advise them a little bit on like what people like me do and other firms that have people like me and if I knew anybody in the network. So I sat down with one of the partners here for a coffee through that introduction. And then halfway through the conversation, it 
it sort of turned into an interview a little bit more where he thought I should come back in and talk to more people about this and get a better sense about what that opportunity looks like. I was very happy at Sapphire, but I loved the opportunity to grow things from like zero to one. I've done that a few times in my career and um, I found that the most challenging and I found a retrospective of what I've done the most useful for my career and for my just brain and mindset. So it was just such a good opportunity. And it's a unique one because Island Europe is a 2.75 billion under management fund that just raised a billion euros. It's definitely a firm that needs platform because it's sort of becoming a necessity within VC and just didn't have anybody yet, uh, truthfully. I think it's because the team is so good at what they were doing. They were, you know, this is one of the best teams I've ever worked with in my career. And they were doing an amazing job doing platform work without calling it platform work. I think the natural thing was just they were getting bigger, better, and stronger at investing and finding great companies. And when a deal comes to your plate, the work that you were doing that I might be doing as a platform person needs to take a back seat. And whether or not it gets picked up again is different. And so I think that was necessitating someone to own a lot of these um, efforts in the team. It sounds like an incredible team to be a part of. VC, you know, as I, I mentioned earlier, I mean, platform roles differ from firm to firm. Uh, some don't have them. Some have a relatively large team now. And there's lots of different roles within the platform organization. So like, why did you decide to take on that a platform role as opposed to say an investor role or, or other? And who do you think is best suited to the platform team? Are there particular skills you really need to succeed? Truthfully speaking, I don't think I'm quite up to doing the investor role. Like I love maths and I'm, I'm very, very happy to be in the midst of numbers and all, but I think it takes a certain mindset to do an investing role. And I don't know that I have that mindset. I, I'm much better at and enjoy the operator mentality and role a bit more. I really thrived when I was in sales and BD. Those were jobs that I, I thought I was really good at and I had really great feedback on. So I wanted to kind of stay in that in that space, but I, I didn't think I'd excel as an investor. I thought I would excel as an operator within a firm. And I found a need and a niche need, if you will, where previous operating experience was actually quite useful in generating good outcomes for a firm. It wasn't necessarily that I would choose the best investment, but I might have the right insights in how this investment might work, or I might have made a good contact in my past sales career that could be helpful in making this investment really shine. So I found that that was a really good opportunity for me to maybe not be an investor, but to really excel and, and stick with a platform experience. If an investor role were to come up in my life at some point in time, I'd have to seriously consider if it made sense for me or not. But I think the learning curve of it feels quite large at the moment compared to what I do. And much to answer your second question, like who's best suited for platform roles, it is people like me who've done sales, business development, marketing. You know, there's other people out there in platform who are doing, you know, HR and talent and so on. So there are these other skills that are not necessarily very financial oriented because we're the growth stage firm. Most of our investors are very financially oriented. These other sort of skills in a stack within a company, if you will, you know, sales, BD, marketing, operations, they're really, really, really useful within platform. When you're in front of a customer and you know this element of how to operate with internally as well, those are all skill sets that drive you to be really good at talking to a CEO and then coming internally, navigating a bunch of partners, finding the right solution, picking the right advisor, finding the oriented like company they need to be speaking to. There's no sale that is ever exactly the same. Truly, when you're a salesperson, everything's a bit different. There's never any interactions pretty much exactly the same as a VC. Totally. Well, it, it certainly seems like a brilliant place to be and a, a great opportunity. And I know there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that can benefit from your advice. Coming on to talk about Highland Europe, it's a 
hugely well-regarded fund. But for those that don't know it, can you share a bit more about Highlands Investment Thesis and what sorts of businesses and founders you typically back? So Highland Europe is about a decade old now. It was originated from Highlands Capital Partners out of the US, but created with the perspective of investing in European founders. So we use that term kind of loosely. A European founder can be many things, but that's in the name. We're themeless, so we don't really have a you know cybersecurity consumer, blah, blah. We, we tend to do all of it. So we have everybody from Huel and Get Your Guide in our portfolio to folks like Camunda, Content Square, So Safe, and, and so on. We're growth stage, so it's more of a Series B, C onwards. Um, looking at people who've hit product market fit, are scaling a business now, and are now looking to go from startup to scale up mode. Uh, so that's really the, the focus of the firm. For any founders listening to this that are kind of getting towards that growth phase and will be pitching to Highland Europe or trying to raise money from the firm, what advice do you have for them to have maybe a, a greater chance of success? The first thing for any founder to know is that you really have to have your data down. It, it should be annoyingly almost like committed to memory. No one's going to look at you and say, clearly this person doesn't know their business if you can't remember an exact number, but instills a lot of trust in your stewardship of your own company that these are very important facts for you to have. When you're pitching a VC, I always tell people, this is not necessarily a one-way transaction. We are not somebody that you're trying to win. You know, uh, It might feel that way because startup funding is a very difficult thing to do because there's more startups than there are VCs and not enough money to go around. But you need to look at it like it's dating. You need to look at it like the person that you're going to choose, you are going to be stuck with for quite a while. You want to be as honest with them as possible. You don't want to play games. And you want to know that the relationship, if it goes badly, will affect you longer than it probably should. And that's only because these are people who are now inexorably tied to your company. And even if you decide you don't want to be part of your company anymore in some facet, you're still inexorably tied to that name, that VC, and so on. So I always tell people, when you're coming to pitch to a VC, know your numbers and know that it's a serious relationship that you're asking for. And the last thing is know what you want from us. Every VC is going to be able to offer you money. If you're just chasing bigger checks, you can very much, very easily be upfront about that and say, like, I'm looking for the best valuation I can find. That's fine. If people want to battle for your business at a valuation, they will. If you're looking for uh, like a trusted partner to help you grow and you don't really mind so much about the money size and you think that the valuation that you need is not as important as the people on your board and the relationship that you have and the value that they can add, that's very different. And you should be able to say that and you can. What we appreciate at Highland Europe specifically is that we want people to do that latter thing. We want people to work with us, to be partnered in this growth. We want to be able to say thank you to you, the founder, at the end of a successful run of your company, whether that be an IPO or an M&A, and for you to feel like you had a partner in that run. We do not want you to feel like we were just the money people that you had to appease on the board and get approval for your spend every quarter. Because ultimately, we want to stay friends. We want, after you've left or once you're like thinking of your next thing or, or want to start a new company, for you to call us and say, hey, Abhishek, we worked well together. We're not ready for Highland Europe, but can you just give me a couple of like bits of information and knowledge as I get my next thing off the ground. Like we're happy to do that. I think that that, that relationship is worth more to us 
the end. It's a partnership, a long-term partnership. And, you know, I think it's great to see when you see founders that raise money from one fund for their first startup. It's unsurprising that often those same investors are back in their second and third. And and it just goes to show the level of trust and mutual respect there is there. And I think that's because they both sides are picked wisely. So yeah, that's brilliant advice. What you just described there is a bit of a nod towards the sort of culture there is in the firm and the way that you look at things. So just as a slight segue, for any talent, any investors or platform people out there that are looking to apply to Highland Europe in the years ahead. Do you mind sharing a bit more about the culture within the firm, what attracted you to the business and what you look for when hiring into your team? It's important to note Highland Europe is is an equal partnership. We're very open about that. It's on our website, it's on our ethos. And so the way our firm operates is very much a collective of wisdom. We had a meeting today where one partner said one thing about their opinion on something and knew very well that it was not a shared opinion by everybody, but said, this is what I'm going to do from now on. This is the way I'm going to operate. And no one's going to say, you're wrong. The firm doesn't operate that way. It is very much an equal partnership and there's an equal say amongst everybody. And it doesn't necessarily need to be that there's 100% agreement on everything. It's just we're all kind of here to help each other. If you're looking to apply to Highland Europe, I think the important thing to know is On the investor side, you're a talented, financially minded person. You're looking to enter the growth stage of investing, not early stage or much, much later stage. And you're really excited by companies who are European-based that are going to turn into scale-ups. So you want to find the next next Think or the next Kamunda or something like that. You're really curious about who those companies are. From a platform side, you have to be here for the founders. That's, I mean, the underlying facet to everything that I do in my role is it's kind of serving to the founders. I will tell you candidly that if a founder comes to me and says, Abhishek, that was an amazing, useful, incredibly helpful thing that you did, and someone internally might be like, was that a value? I will 100% say it was because I'm much happier to make my founders really, really happy. On the platform side internally too, as I'm looking to hire folks, I would say that it's really important that you're not really good at one thing. And I say that knowing full well that there are a lot of people who are really good at one thing. And I don't knock that at all. I think just in this role, the size of the company, with the the landscape that we need to operate in, you really need to be able to be nimble. Like it's, it's important. I'm adamant that, you know, each day can be very different. And if you feel really, really stuck into a mindset of being methodical in your work, it's hard to do that. And not that I don't think it's important. I think it's great. If I had a different career, I might be very methodical in my work. I just, I'm not afforded that luxury. Really. Brilliant advice. And it's a great role for generalists and people that are able to flex and move quickly and try different things in context switch a lot, isn't it? We discussed earlier, you know, you're from the US. We've seen a number of US funds come to Europe in recent years. We see a lot of obviously transatlantic startups coming from here to there or, or vice versa. And you've got a really interesting viewpoint on that, having been both an operator and now in the VC world in both markets. So what are your thoughts on the differences and similarities? between the US and UK sort of tech markets and where do you think the biggest overlaps or gaps are? UK is is initially it's a smaller market. I mean Europe more comparable but UK specifically smaller market. When I got here I think it was like the the saying was that the UK was like three years behind the US in a lot of the trends. Now people might say it's two years behind. I mean the gap's getting smaller like there there isn't as much of an obvious difference you look at things like the way that AI is scaling, like there's going to be European LLMs versus American LLMs and so on. It's really, really different. It's really, really different in many ways. I think the one thing I'll say that is probably useful to everybody is that the US is a more homogenous market than Europe is. 
the UK is much more homogenous than the US, but it's much smaller. So you view your opportunity as a European opportunity when you come out here, not a UK opportunity. By that measure, Europe is not very homogenous in that you can be a very successful Swedish startup that does great work in the Nordics and still not really have as big an impact as if you were a very successful Southern or Midwestern company, because that Southern and Western company does not have as many barriers to cross to then sell to the West and the Northeast and so on. Because the US has the luxury of really truly like one collective market, one collective language, the revenue opportunities are, are much easier to scale, which is probably why people end up doing a lot of their business out in the US in that way. I think what Europe has is concentrated successes and concentrated successful markets. But as a result, you really need to prove a multifaceted, multilingual, multinational approach before you can really be successful in Europe. Arguably, I would say really good European companies, the really good ones that have proven that, they're going to be much better than the really good American companies that have proved that because they will have proven internationalization earlier in their in their life cycle than an American company would have had to. Oh, thank you very much for sharing. US founders typically have you know, being seen as more bullish that failed startups is a kind of badge of honor, something that perhaps is not always the way it would be seen over here. I feel like things have been changing in, in recent years, but there are the obvious kind of just cultural differences. What do you think are the biggest lessons as somebody from the US that is now working over here? What are some of the biggest lessons you think the UK tech scene and founders particularly can learn from our brothers and sisters across the pond? There's a, you said the bullishness, there's, there's a risk tolerance that people in the US have that we don't necessarily have in the UK. It's not that we don't have a strong risk tolerance, it's just that they have this very different one. You know, the failed company, the pull your by your bootstraps, which is a horrendous phrase because it was meant to be a joke when someone created it anyways, is a mentality that the US has in, in droves. If I were to talk to a UK founder and say, how do you want to be more like a US person? I would caution to say that the US founder is company first and people second often at that founding stage. They're more than willing to spend their entire life working hard for that company and to allow the personal life that they have to kind of fall by the wayside a little bit. It's because there is this mentality that your work is your identity in the US. So the first thing I would say to a UK founder, truthfully, if you want to try to emulate an American founder is convert your thinking about work that this job is now your identity. And that will help you make a lot of the concessions that you'll have to make to be successful. It's very hard to do. And I don't say that lightly, but that's why Americans have a bit of a better economic risk tolerance is because like you said, that badge of honor of a failed startup, it means that their identity is around taking risk and around being a pioneer and around being an entrepreneur. Whereas that's not necessarily here in Europe as a whole, but especially in the UK too, is there are people who do all that, but would never talk about it openly in a, at a cocktail hour. Whereas in America, that's like, what, like I said at the beginning of our chat, it's like, what do you do is the first thing you would ask somebody in the US. Whereas here you might ask about the person. Work is a priority in, in life there. Uh, it's really insightful and really interesting. Thank you. Um, coming towards the end, Sally Abhishek, but there's a, a few more questions I'd just love to get your thoughts on. Of course, we're going to have founders, uh, you know, like you that are in the US coming to the UK and start businesses over here or join leadership teams or, or vice versa. Do you have any 
particular advice for for founders, let's say, from the US coming here or from the UK to the US, just around how to navigate those markets, whether it's fundraising or just, just any other tips that would just really help? I mean, I would honestly say that US founders coming here probably don't need to worry as much about fundraising. If they've fundraised in order to finance themselves coming here, they probably are okay. I actually wrote two playbooks about this at Sapphire Ventures about the expansion into Europe from a US founder perspective. So take a look, Sapphire Ventures, European expansion playbooks. Really proud of those works because they're a lot like the index ventures and the frontline ventures books that were written about how to expand your business out here. And it is a take. It's like, hey, US founder, where are you going to set up shop? Why do you want to consider these companies, these countries? What are you going to think about when it comes to your hiring plan? What is the importance of multilingual team members and so on? I said it earlier and it stands true. It's is Europe is not a single market. It's not truly like if you just sell to Germany, it's going to be very different than you're selling into France, selling into Sweden, selling into the UK. So just knowing that, picking your spots, being very methodical, being very surgical is very important. Definitely. And clearly, the, the funding landscape is still challenging. I think we're seeing it's, there's green shoots and there is capital being deployed. So I want to make sure we're uh, giving a realistic but positive view for any founders raising right now. But um, just as a final, before we get to our wrap up questions, what are some of the, the sort of biggest mistakes you're seeing founders make when pitching for funds? And are there any other final points you'd give advice on? The biggest mistakes, like truthfully, the biggest mistakes are any sort of like lying or hiding of data probably the worst mistake that I could see a founder ever making. But like I said, you're dating somebody, like how long are you going to be able to keep this misbehavior under wraps is really tough. The, the smaller, more like common mistakes here is I think a lot of founders look for their VCs and think I'm going to get the most money and the most valuation I can possibly get. And we saw all that happen in 21 and 22 and 20 and 2021. That's caused a lot more problems right now, to be honest with you. Like I think the biggest thing a founder can can do is realistically measure the value of their company and know that if the public comps of something in their space is seven to eight X ARR to match themselves in that light and in that space. And don't think that the 20 X that you had or that you could have commanded in 2021 is going to happen again. So it's unfortunate that it's a little bit of like humility and a little less ego uh, is, is really important. Really wise words. Thank you. Recording this episode at the start of the year. So I'd love to hear any career or life advice you have for our listeners that are kind of maybe it's new year, new job, or just kind of reflecting about how they're going to make this year a success. What advice do you have for our audience? I'm a big fan of waterfall resolutions. So every month for the year, you can start late. No one cares. Pick a new thing. So this month, I'm airing to be vegetarian for as long as possible. I'd like to see how I do and then do a different one every month. See what sticks, see what doesn't stick. I did this a couple of years ago. Some of my habits stuck, some didn't. It was fine. It was good. It challenged me a lot. It made me think more actively about my day, which we don't necessarily always do, which I think is super important. Um, from a career perspective too, I think the most important thing I would say this year in this like kind of space and weird world that we're living in is network as much as you can right now. People are still very, very hungry to do a lot of networking post-COVID. And uh, in the markets that we're in, you never know what relationship is going to happen. I'm happy to have coffees with so many people who we can't do anything for each other, but it's just good to sit there and talk for 40 minutes about each other and about the work they do. And who knows, maybe in like six months, they'll need me for something or I'll need them for something. It'll be great. But like network, it's so helpful. In fact, we met that way entirely just because you saw my you saw my name somewhere is that let's have a coffee we sat down and chat like that's that's helpful so true i'm so glad you said that because th th there is this 
feeling that networking sometimes has this dirty word, but actually it's just relationship building. And I think the best way you can go into that is just open-minded. I've always said I play the long game, but meeting interesting people, having great conversations, being there for somebody else, uh, you'll never know when that that might come good. And if not, it's just a good connection made. So uh, yeah, I really, really agree with that. What are you personally most excited about in 2024? And where do you see the, the biggest opportunities either for yourself or Highland Europe? I'm excited for those green shoots that you mentioned. Like we're coming back into a phase of fundraising that is, the way I'll say this is, if you look at all the graphs of fundraising trends in Europe from 2017, 18, 19 to now, and you erase the insanity of 2021 and 2022 and the down of 2023, to be honest with you, if you erase the, the couple of year blip, it's all still going up and to the right at kind of a metered pace. Like we're doing a good job of growing this ecosystem. We just had this like insane once in a lifetime event of COVID. Um, so I'm excited for us to continue to grow that, continue to be successful, continue to grow a region, continue to find amazing companies, get the next big unicorns in, like, let's do it. But I think everybody's a bit down. They're like, oh, VC funding is the lowest it's been in three years. Well, yeah, because three years ago, everybody was operating in a completely different clip than they even want to operate now anyways. Like, it's going to be lower than it was three years ago. It has to be. Love that optimism and pragmatism. And I think we all need a bit of that. I think it's not all doom and gloom and there is so much to be excited about for sure. Finally, this is the 40 Minute Mentor. So I have to ask if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? My answer is Michael Lewis, the author of uh, Going Infinite and Moneyball and The Big Short and All. I just really feel like my hobby on the side is writing and I really love the way he captures stories and the stories that he does capture and how he went from you know a trading background at Solomon Brothers into this sort of authorship uh, world that he's in. So I'd love to be mentored by a person like him. But I mean, if I could sit down with him for a coffee for like five minutes in an elevator, I'd probably do it. Well, that's a great answer. And we'll put it out there into the universe in case somebody knows him <laughs> to make that happen. No, great shout. I really loved our conversation. Thank you so much for being so generous with your advice and story. And there's so much in here for anyone, whether you're founder, whether you're somebody looking to get into a platform role or just generally interested in the, the venture ecosystem. And also I'm going to ha- give that waterfall technique a go when it comes to New Year's resolutions and, and aims because I've never never really stuck to one and I feel like that's a really nice way of bringing something different into the year and having something to focus the mind each month so thank you so much I really wish you and the business all the very best for 2024 and look forward to catching up again soon thanks so much appreciate you having me and that is all from us today Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it. If you're a new listener and haven't left us feedback before, we would really appreciate it if you did. We'd love to hear what you love most about 40 Minute Mentor and how you think we can make it even better. So if you have 30 seconds after this episode, I'd be so grateful if you could head to ratethispodcast.com forward slash 40mm and leave us a rating and review. You can also leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if we've left any questions unanswered in today's episode, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, then please do let our head of marketing, Hannah, know. Thank you so much again for all your support, and I hope to see you next Wednesday for even more pocket-sized mentorship. Thank you.